It's time for OWC Radio, Tech Talk with Creatives, conversations with host Serena Catania. This is Serena Catania with OWC Radio, and I am talking with Ed Newman, who is an author, a blogger, an artist, and one of the most entertaining and informed people I've spoken with in a long time. I met him through my connections in Duluth when I was there recently working on the two-day master workshop on filmmaking that we were doing. And Ed and I started talking on the phone the other day, and, and he was telling me, Ed, I got to say, you have some interesting stories. I have had a lot of interesting experiences, and you haven't heard piece of it. But, <laughs> hey, thank you for having me on your show. Oh, it's fun. Yeah, this is great. It's fun. I think you blew me away when you said you had interviewed Kurt Vonnegut. Did you interview him? or? Yeah, mm. it was by telephone. It was set up. I guess uh, when you interview lots of people over a period of time, you learn a few things. One of them is always to be punctual. And uh, But it was a lot of fun. I started by pitching a story to Screen Printing Magazine about Jonathan Winters uh, as an artist. Most people know him as a comedian. And so they weren't that interested. But then I pitched a story on Joe Petro, the uh, Kentucky screen printer, who actually did Jonathan Winter's art. And he had done um, Kurt Vonnegut and uh, Ralph Steadman, who illustrated for uh, Hunter Thompson. And so I got in the inside, basically, to access to all these people. And it was really fun. Um, when I called uh, Kurt Vonnegut, um, he was, you know, sitting at home watching Sunday afternoon football, uh, New York Giants, just uh, like any guy, you know, uh, who's into football. So anyway, it was uh, really rewarding. So talk to me about him as an artist. Well, he had gone to give a lecture in uh, Lexington, Kentucky, and uh Joe Petro was the one who was doing um, posters for this, uh, you know, or, you know, how they got to publicize speakers. And so he uh, basically interacted with Mr. Vonnegut and one thing led to another. And the next thing you know, they were friends and he was illustrating a lot of Kurt Vonnegut's art. And uh, just like uh, some of his stories, as you know, there's a humorous side underneath and some of the artwork was that way too. I just really admire his work. I wish we had visuals we could show people. Maybe we'll do a print version of this so we could put some of this up. What was your takeaway when you talked with him? My takeaway from him, oh gosh, he was very perceptive. I kind of tried to build a bridge with him and said that I'd read all his books when I was in college and all of his books and Herman Hesse's books. And his response to me was, you must have been lonely. <laughs> and I, I had a list of questions I wanted to ask. But while I was talking to him, my head was going like, was I lonely? Am I lonely? Is, oh, he's, what he said was, you must be lonely, like present tense, you know, that I would be so into Hess. But anyway, it was uh, fun. We went in some different directions. But uh, the interview with Jonathan Winters is the one that really was amazing to me. And he, as you know, he has all these different personalities. And uh, he would become all those personalities while talking to me. So like, he would tell stories and then he'd become these different people. <laughs> You know, the artist and, he, you know, there was nobody over his shoulder saying, you can't put that line there. You can't use that color here. 
Can you actually pick something that you remember that he painted? So if Jonathan Winters was this artist, what what kind of stuff was he painting? Can you describe it? Yeah, so I have a book here. It's called Hang Ups by uh, Jonathan Winters paintings. And uh, you can go online to Amazon. I'm sure it's still on there. But like one of them shows a little colorful little village with ball colors in the trees and all these bombs falling in a red sun. But a lot of his stuff was influenced by Native American art. And they have funny names. This one's called Pathetic Black Moon with Awful Base with Dead Flowers in it. <laughs> oh, oh, that's positive. Now, why why do you think he was um, inspired by Native Americans? Did, did he say anything about that to you when you talked to him? He might have. Uh, that was uh, 16 years ago. I can go on my blog and find that and dig it up but uh i think we'd run out of time here's one called the umbrella dancers Uh, you know some of them are very amusing hang-ups it's a bunch of clothes hangers you know (laughs) coat hangers oh my god and uh i love it yeah from i just found the cover and it it's very simple it's kind of reminiscent to me of some of grandma moses's stuff I haven't seen the rest of them. I just see the cover here. Yes, it's yeah, yes, primitivist or something. But uh, here, uh, the, it's the humor of the titles: Costo looking for the Loch Ness monster, <laughs> and it's a, a kind of an undersea thing made of can't even tell exactly what it is. Sort of like an underwater uh, submarine, but a different and uh, for what it's worth uh, it's worth looking up so do you remember what kurt vonnegut's art looked like looked like big doodles you know uh, interesting um, shapes and people you could probably find that online too i'm searching while i'm talking to you oh here it is oh that's interesting you never knew this and i i love his work when i told you when i first met you one of the big regrets in my life yeah. was I never got to meet Kurt Vonnegut. I really, really wanted to interview right, him exactly. before he passed. He's uh, our generation. Mm-hmm. He uh, he was speaking to our generation with things like Cat's Cradle and Slaughterhouse-Five. And even his first novel, I believe, P- uh, Player Piano, had to do with uh, uh, AI. Hmm. I mean, we're talking about back in you know, late 40s or early 50s. Hmm. Well, so. he certainly had uh, an just an intuitive knowledge of the psychology of the human machine, right? I mean, when he asked you if you were lonely, yes. he had apparently just, he was observing you and he noticed something that triggered a thought in his mind. And and he said that. I was into Herman Hess. Uh, <laughs> that, was, that was the trigger. There you go. <laughs> you didn't have to see my face or anything. Oh, that's right, because yeah. it was a phone interview. Um, People like that are fascinating. I just find them fascinating that they're so intuitive about other human beings. It's really a gift. And I and I think that shows up in his writing. I think I told you I named one of my fish after one of the characters in his short stories. Well, what was the name? It was uh, Harrison Bergeron. I named it Harrison. Harrison was the ballet dancer. And I can't remember the name right now, the short story. This was many years ago. Okay. And um, he was a ballet dancer and lived in an age when no one was allowed to excel. And the story starts out with two elderly people, a man and a woman, husband and wife, and they're watching television. And the ballet dancer comes in and they're just mortified because he might get arrested for being beautiful and talented. Writers like like him, are timeless because they tap into the basic human psyche and they deal with 
uh, those emotions that everyone has that are ageless. And I just love that. So, Right. Uh, I was visiting my daughter and when they were living in Maryland uh, two years ago and went to a you know a book group with her and they were they were studying Vonnegut uh, a reading of the Vonnegut book that month and you know she's not even thirty and uh, you know is uh, well she's thirty this year but anyway she she was into Vonnegut and friends mm-hmm. are into Vonnegut so it's you know it translates across across time time and and. And cultural borders, too, because there are certain aspects of humanity that are, they're the same with every human being. Yeah. You asked me a question about how I felt about stars, actors, and and performers. And, you know, I think my response was something like, as much as we think they have changed, I don't think people really do change that much. I think the way we describe what they're doing might. And of course, the culture has shifted a little bit. But Mm -hmm. I wonder what Vonnegut would say if he were alive today. Oh, you mean with this current uh, chaos in our uh, uh, public discourse, the, 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 the uncivility the, the lack yeah, of civility the social and in the public chaos. discourse is a, mm-hmm. probably be a topic somewhere. Um, it's unfortunate. Yeah. So let's go back to the beginning with you. I'm just curious. When did you first decide that you liked to write? How old were you and what were you doing? I'm a creative person. And so very early on, I was enrolled in the Cleveland Institute of Art before kindergarten. I took a summer uh, classes at the Art Institute because supposedly I never scribbled when I was a kid. That's what I was told. I don't believe. Uh, what I believe is they saw me. I used to love to trace animals and trace pictures through the paper. So it's, you know, maybe nobody remembers that I might have scribbled earlier. But anyway, when you get lots of strokes for doing something well, being able to drawn perspective and shading and give three-dimensional looks to things when you're in second grade you get a lot of strokes and you do more of it so i did art (laughs) and then in high school i got strokes for my writing Mm -hmm. i had an english teacher who was very supportive of and i'd written a short story first person uh, as a stick of gum in a package of gum and the girl I was in love with was lying next to me, but Aww. I was too shy to talk, you know. And <laughs> anyway, we both end up in the same mouth and are, you know, suffering, end up uh, becoming one. So that... That's great. He entered that story. He entered a story into an asked for my commission. This is really good, you know. And uh, I enter it in a uh, national... Uh, high school fiction competition, which he did, you know, and it, it made me feel something that even it didn't win anything, but it gave, you know, again, a, a positive that my creative self wasn't so wacko that it was, you know, it's all on how you tell the story and not how goofy the idea is. We all know that mm-hmm. there's some movies that the premise seems like it's too goofy to work, mm-hmm. like being John Malkovich, but it totally works when they pull it off. You know, it's kind of, and that's that's what uh, artists and writers try to do. They, they, they have mm-hmm. this, uh, they develop their skills so that they can pull it off. And that's why we remember Kurt Vonnegut, for example. You know, he pulls off 
uh, Slaughterhouse Five, you know, transported to other dimensions in time and, you know, back and forth. It's, uh, you know, but he, he's telling the story of the bombing of Dresden. It's like uh, a very powerful, creative way to retell, and it's more interesting than reading it in an uh, Encyclopedia Britannica. Absolutely. What did you call, do you remember what you called the story about the gum when you were in high school? Do you remember the name of it? I, I, no, I don't really remember it, but uh, what I remember is it ends with the, the the two that have been mushed together being stuck on the bottom <laughs> of a table, and then nine months later, somebody <laughs> finds a pack of gum. I love that. You know, why did I flash on, you know, I used to love reading E.E. E. Cummings, um, and, and he had a story, I think it was called She Being Brand. Yes. And it was basically the story of a man driving a car, his car for the first time, but it wasn't about that at all. Um, and it was about, you know, about the tension that he was feeling as a, a male and testosterone was getting out of control, I guess. But right. I don't know why I flashed on that when you're talking about sticks of gum. That that tells you how weird creative minds are, right? We're going to go off into another universe here in a minute. So you got out of high school and then, and then what? Oh, I went to college. In Ohio, I started with philosophy and um, got in, went to art. Uh, and so uh, I did some writing and fiction and literature and communications, uh, but I was primarily focused on being a fine artist. Um, after college, uh, personal issues in my life, I my life bottomed out. I um, abandoned my art. And then uh, I wanted to be a missionary mm. and had a religious conversion type of thing like Bob Dylan in the 79 to 81. And then mm-hmm. suddenly, you know, the famous uh, singer, songwriter we all know who doesn't talk on the stage was giving sermons. And then uh, I was similarly uh, very committed to that and wanted to be a missionary. And when I got married, we went to Mexico, worked at an orphanage. And then when we came back, kind of bottomed out, wondering how I'm going to you know, provide. I was like 30 years old and didn't know what I was going to do with the rest of my life. And then I redefined myself. I was in the Minneapolis and uh, I had had skills, but I didn't have any of my art supplies. I didn't have anything really with me, but I had this creative bent and I was told, uh, you know, redefine yourself as a creative person and there's a lot of options. And I began writing it and uh, went to some writers conferences, joined writers group. And I actually, what really happened was I was reading uh, Ernest Hemingway's In Our Time and I read it and I read it a second time and right in a row and I read it halfway through mm-hmm. a third time and I was so moved by the power of the, the the prose I mean it was just he didn't use any fancy language it was and it was like being punched in the face and having your glasses knocked across the room and I say that as a metaphor because I don't wear glasses but you know it was just really uh it was just the power there was the one page in the doctor and the doctor's wife I read it 10 times in a row trying mm-hmm. to figure out how did he make me feel such tension when he never used the word anger, pissed, you know, I mean, 
there's all these cheap shortcut ways to show tension by just saying he was so mad. He was pounding his fist into his palm, you know, whatever. He didn't do any of that. And, you know, that subtle power and we see it in, in great acting, you know, the, just the, the devastation uh, that is communicated just with a look, you know, and you, you, know, the, you know that their whole life has just flashed before their eyes or something, you know? Mm-hmm. And then I, I wanted to write like that, basically. That mm-hmm. that was a turning point. And I I really felt, in a sense, that when you're a writer, the whole world, you, you know, you're basically t- can talk to the whole world. And that uh, if you're going to talk to the whole world, then you've got to work really hard to be worth listening to and work really hard to have something to say and work really, really hard to hone the craft so that it doesn't get in the way of what you're trying to say. Mm -hmm. Well, you certainly have had a very prolific career. The link you sent me to your written work is, I don't know how many pages long it is. You've written thousands and thousands of of wonderful stories and blogs, and you've interviewed a lot of really interesting people. You've won awards for your work. I mean, The Breaking Point? Tell me about that. That won the Arrowhead Regional Arts Fiction Contest, right? Most of us, when we uh, go in any direction, you need something at some point that tells you, yeah, you're not nuts to want to do that. And Mm -hmm. when I I was writing short stories, primarily because I was working full-time. So when you're working full-time, it's really hard to be a novelist, I have to say. So I was writing short stories, and uh, that one is a story about a a woman gets a a bill in the mail from Montgomery Wards or whatever that says that, oh, there's for this uh, TV set. And uh, she, her birthday's coming up in a few days, so she thinks it's, you know, her surprise birthday mm-hmm. present coming up and and she's waiting, you know, it's about the tension between her and her husband regarding this TV set that isn't coming on her birthday. And uh and the breaking point is uh is how it ends. But it's um anyway, it's uh it was fun to write, uh fun you know, and uh, actually, you know, it's kind of based on a story i overheard the work and uh uh, there's uh embellished i guess Mm. but tried to put myself into her her shoes but the best part of that story is roughly at that same time i uh was looking for an agent i met america online had come on you know we were was expanding and i found an agent online named pr queen i don't know if she's what she's known as today but I sent her my stories and she said of all the writers she'd read that year, uh, 200 writers, I was the best. She said, I got bad news though. No, no New York publisher will publish your stories. You know, Uh they don't, you're an unknown. You're not being published in literary journals. So you got to write a novel. So that was my impetus then to, you know, think about what should my story be and uh, my novel and, but then I got sidetracked because uh, the movie Iron Will was was uh, filmed here in Duluth in '93. Uh, Kevin Spacey and uh, some other names. And um, didn't you tell me that's how you met Ricky McManus? Yes, that's I, I went to the uh, screen test, you know, and you know talked to the camera for a minute and said some things or whatever, and then. Uh, I was an extra in that film uh, for a couple of scenes, 
uh, and got a taste for Hollywood. And the Disney producer for that was Robert Schwartz. And he uh, was happened to be from Minnesota and had been a friend of mine who was kind of my mentor, actually, as a writer. One of the uh, There's so many great, talented people that don't make it as they're not discovered or whatever. But John mm-hmm. Prynne was uh, uh, very, uh, he was the guy that really helped me mm-hmm. move to a higher level. You know, I just want to say for those listening, I, I mentioned Ricky McManus. She is the uh, director at the Upper Minnesota Film Office. Is that the correct way to say her her title? But we've all, I've gotten to know her through the Catalyst Content Festival and she's an amazing woman. It's interesting when you go into a small town like Duluth, there's six degrees of separation yeah. to so many people. And um, anyway, so for those of you listening, that's the connection between Ricky and and Ed Newman, who we're talking to now. If you want to talk about degrees of separation, it's like I. So I'm a Dylan fan. Uh, segue. You want you can bring me back to this other topic. But, yeah, I will. Uh, I actually got to so, meet Bob Dylan on this on the. I don't even know what what he was doing. He was on the MGMUA lot, and uh, I think it was when we were doing something with was it Duran Duran? I can't remember. Anyway, this was years ago, and I got, and I got to meet him, but I didn't know until I went to Duluth that he's actually from Duluth. So. I know you've got some Dylan stories. I want to hear them. Okay. <laughs> there was a radio program uh, called Highway 61 Revisited, and it's kind of interesting. I was I would listen to that every Saturday night in my garage, which is an art studio during the summer. We're in Minnesota, so in the wintertime, I don't keep it heated, so my paint is not out there. But from spring to fall, I, I would listen to the show every Saturday night, and um, eventually, you know, I learned that they have this like Dylan festival. And uh, and so then I went, I guess. And then the next thing you know, I was going to the meetings and I was right. Well, I'm a writer. So I'm a blogger since 2007. So I blog every day. I'm looking for content. And Bob Dylan is always good content. And so you, I started meeting people like they would come from overseas to come to Dylan Fest and they would come to the Hibbing and somebody's cousin would come into town and say, can you take me to Bob Dylan's houses? You know, well, over time, I eventually got to know the, you know, the guy who owned Bob Dylan's house here in uh, Central Hillside at Duluth, Bill Pagel. And he's an archivist and a collector of Dylan memorabilia. And uh, he also owned a house next door to the house in Hibbing where Dylan grew up uh, from age you know six to, Left, left for college. So now, slowly, you know, it was no longer six degrees of separation. It's three degrees and then two degrees. So, I, mm-hmm. you know, I meet meet people who, you know, traveled on the Rolling Thunder Review with Dylan and uh, people who knew Bob when he went to school with him. And I'm meeting, you know, it's just been really, for Dylan fan, it's just fun. And I meet these, ed- there's Writers who come here are doing research on Dylan's history in his hometown and his background. There's it's been a, there's a lot of very interesting people in the world. Dylan seems to have uh, been the glue that pulled a lot of those people mm, together. And much more can be said on all those things. I want to know more. Tell me. <laughs> well, what do you want to know? <laughs> I want to know all the secrets. <laughs> there's uh, the Duluth Armory is where uh, Bob 
uh, Dylan saw Buddy Holly um, a couple of days before the famous and tragic crash with uh, the Big Bopper and uh, Richie Valens. And each year they ha- they had a what a winter dance party, kind of commemorating that uh, that event when he was here at the Army. But it's also to raise awareness for the Duluth Army, which they're trying to renovate and they're trying to raise funds. It's a historic building. And so each time I write about it every year at this time, I learn more things. So one, one year I learned the reason they were on that plane was because it was 20 below here in uh, Duluth that night. And it actually was 40 below wind chill. And they were um, taking the bus from Duluth to Milwaukee and the bus broke down. And these guys are all from Texas and California. They didn't have parkas. They didn't have snowmobile boots. They almost died. Hmm. Uh, literally, they were in the middle of nowhere, and they were burning everything they could on the bus. But the drummer did get frostbite on his feet and couldn't play in, anymore wow. uh, in Milwaukee around the tour. And so uh, a couple of days later, they, you know, the Buddy Holly said, "Let's not get on that bus. Let's get up there fast. We got to do laundry." And, and then, you know, five minutes after takeoff, they crashed in a cornfield in Iowa. Clearly. Yeah. Well, that was the first year I, I learned that the second or third time I was writing about it. Well, then the next time I was writing about it, the following year, I learned that uh, how Bobby V uh, got his start in music. It was uh, in Fargo. Uh, they had a, um, a radio competition because Buddy Holly was killed, but the, the, the show had to go on. And the you know when the bus pulls into town, they needed a, a, somebody who could be Buddy Holly, hmm. and they had a competition. Who knew the most Buddy Holly songs could play them and sing them? Hmm. Bobby V, this 15 year old kid, was the one. And so uh, you know he that was his beginning in show business. Hmm. And then uh, the next year, I learned that Buddy Holly had carried a gun. Oh no! He was a Texas musician in a rock band and sometimes when they didn't get paid seriously they needed some leverage (laughs) and the seriously and what's more is that uh the gun had been fired with inside the plane and some speculation is that possibly when he threw his duffel bag in the back after takeoff that it went off and, and possibly shot the pilot now this is totally speculation so but i have a friend who's a forensic scientist who wants to (laughs) open up the case there's that's probably lots of people the guy who owned the plane he recently passed it was planning to write a book but he didn't want everything to come out because he didn't want uh he wanted to make sure insurance got paid to all the families of those who lost their lives and uh because and so not all the facts came out but uh you can go and actually find well i've written about it on my blog so the forensic and Mm. the information about the the crash well then the next thing i always was wondering was who did bob dylan go with to see the winter dance party i mean who 
he he came down from Hibbing. He probably did not come by himself, so he must have been with somebody. It wasn't his buddies up there, the golden chords that he played with, or the, you know. Well, it turns out I just found out um, his friend from summer camp uh, years of uh, summer camp. One of them was Louis Kemp, and Louis Kemp uh, was uh, living here in Duluth, and um, Bob Dylan. Louis just came out with a book called Dylan and Me. So um, it's his stories, and he doesn't even call Bob Dylan Bob Dylan in his book. It's Bobby. He was always Bobby Zimmerman to me, and he says Bob Dylan was just a persona. But uh, so Louis um, is the one who went to the um, uh, dance party with with Mm -hmm. Bob, you know, and Mm -hmm. uh, so he came for his book was launched just last month, a couple of weeks ago, actually. And he came up here to Duluth and we uh, went to the armory and he showed us where he stood, you know, and Bob stood as close as he could to the stage. And uh, so it was, it's been fun. Those are the kind of things just being, you know, now that's called one degree of separation. I think it might be two. Oh, absolutely. Now you also have another blog post that you put up recently uh, about uh, you called it fifty years ago today, a beautiful night on the Isle of Wight with Dylan. Yes, first of all, Dylan uh, he was up in Woodstock uh, after his motorcycle accident uh, that ended his uh, tour with the band, and uh, that's a controversial thing. But he was there with his family, started and uh, was there for a few years, and wasn't performing, and he you know. Uh, and the band was up there with him, but I guess some speculation, according to a couple uh, sources, that uh, Woodstock was a hope to Bob Dylan would come out and be part of it, and Bob Dylan really didn't like all the hippies crawling through the woods into his yard and people on the roof, and you know it was uh, <laughs> basically a very intrusive thing that he just wanted his privacy he had a family and uh was making music with friends and uh so he uh went to the did a gig at the isle of white he was the headliner at the isle of white and uh which so while woodstock was going on he was packing his bags basically uh there's much much more to be said about that it was uh must be something uh to be somebody that like in the audience, you know, three of the four Beatles were there with their wives and Eric Clapton and all these other people like in the VIP section right up close. And it must be interesting. I remember, uh, this is a, something I read, uh, but Jimi Hendrix, when he went uh, to England, he had did a concert, his first concert uh, was three days after uh, Sgt. Pepper came out and the Beatles were in the audience and I think the Stones and some other people like that maybe and yeah. uh he played the opening of sergeant pepper's lonely hearts club <laughs> band album. wow in his way yeah that must have been interesting i bet you said in your blog post that you got a bootleg cd of the concert that night yes john john uh bushy uh uh who had this radio program uh you know like i say highway 61 uh, revisit the late John Bushy, and and he uh, people would send him CDs and 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 tapes and CDs from all you know all over from 
just so he was he had hundreds and hundreds and you know I, I, it's like his, they're all across the floor and he's rating them because he doesn't some are good and some have all the ch- people are chattering and you know they're not he's looking for the good stuff and you know what's really interesting is you think you can get great history from the actual people that were living it but i find when i talk to other journalists or writers or uh documentarians that they have the most amazing stories to tell and I, I think that's true of you because you've lived so far and you're not done yet a very rich life I mean you've got over 5,000 blog posts in there and and I admire that because I think a true artist works every day and because they love it and you obviously just love it are there a couple of wonderful memories that you want to talk about that I that I don't know about yet or that you you know, if you just clear your mind for a second and think back. One that comes to mind is hitchhiking to Washington, D.C. for May Day 1971 anti-war protest. That's a long story. The biggest riot in U.S. history, the most arrests in U.S. history for in a single day. And learned a lot, but the many lessons are, for me, were about manipulation of masses. You went to the May Day protests in D.C. How long were you there? I was um, in the spring semester. I had arranged all my classes to be on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. So I had uh, my weekend would start at supper time Thursday, and then uh, Tuesday I had to be back. So I had long weekends. And I decided I was going to hitchhike. So I left town with a sleeping bag and not much else. And I didn't even have any money. And uh, I, uh, God, I'm, it was Athens, Ohio, I was in Southeast Ohio, and I was a hippie, and it's redneck country, so I didn't get any rides uh, once I got out of town. <laughs> Did you have long hair? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and uh, it was down the shoulders. At one time, it was one time it was at my waist, but I usually wasn't that long. And then, uh, so I woke up the next morning, and... Uh, Oh, I slept in the side in a ditch on the side of the road, and then I got up and. Um, oh, but anyway, it's a lo- it's a long story, um, with many. Oh, I want to hear. I want to hear more, though. You you arrived in D.C. and then what happened? Um, well, I had a friend who was very political, and I was not as political, but I he was always telling me, Eddie, um, the artist is the vanguard of the revolution, and he was always wanting me to do become more political. And uh, so I hitchhiked out there and he was out there and I, I, I went, basically I got uh, spent the night before on a Friday night at uh, some hippies that had a pad with like about 15 mattresses on the floor. And there was somebody freaking out from acid still from three days before he got into gone to the circus and, uh, had a bad trip. And uh, anyway, I crashed. The next morning, they drove me to my aunt's house. My aunt was uh, in Falls Church. And then she drove me down and gave me $10 in case I get arrested, mm-hmm. because that'll get me out of jail. That's your, your, I didn't have any money. And all along the way, what was interesting is I, by the time I got back to Athens on Tuesday morning, I didn't... Uh, I don't even know how I, you know, it's just the generosity and the, maybe the 
the hippie spirit or everybody who has food shares it with others didn't whatever but um my anyway that ten dollars when the riots broke out and then there was Oh, how much detail you want here? No, I'm curious. I mean, there were over. They say they would say there were like fifty thousand people there. That's un, you know. It was two hundred, two hundred thousand. Really? Wikipedia says thirty to fifty, but uh, New York Times said two hundred. I thought it was three hundred thousand. I mean, it was all the way from the Lincoln Memorial to the Washington Monument, and I, I think all the way on the other side to the Capitol. I never saw that all that far that way, but. Um, so anyway, there's all these people there, and the first day, a Saturday, was you know music and then speeches, and uh, you know Beach Boys were playing when I arrived, and there's you know 200,000 people in front of me, and I look across, and my friend Rob, with red hair, standing up, waving his arms. It's like I had only been there two minutes, and we found each other, you know. So then we we were together that. Uh, that day and then that night um around you know there was police that surrounded the place uh so just to contain it i guess and uh there was a perimeter and there was like this uh, funny little tank type thing it was an armored vehicle that the kids were throwing rocks at and i don't know what it was doing but it was kind of comical and then uh but uh, none of the hippies, or none of the protesters, I should say, because there were non-hippies protesting, but had uh, was aware that the, you know the government had had a bent penny uh, brigade, which was uh, 200 people who infiltrated and tried to look like they were protesters, and they were, if they got arrested, the bent penny in their pocket was their ID that they were, you know, wow. they were on the side of the government. You know that was. Uh, Interesting story. I wrote about that on uh, Medium. And uh, next morning at four in the morning, then the bullhorns, uh, uh, the police that were surrounding the place, all of the main, you know, dream uh, said, it's uh, your permits are expired. You have to leave. So then most of us didn't know where to go. Lots of people went home because that, that was the party. And then a lot of people, but the, you know, the people who organized it said, we didn't come here for a party. We came here to shut down the government and, you know, we're going to have a nonviolent protest uh, in here in Washington and uh, come get instructions at the universities. So the universities were like a safety zone. And um, uh, I went to Georgetown and American U and there was a third one. And so then I spent the day teaching nonviolent tactics and I just uh they broke us up into groups of 100 and then there was all these people with bullhorns talk to your group and uh, it was in my group somebody would say well what happens if the police start hitting us they won't start hitting you and then others said well yeah but what if they do start hitting us and the person with the bullhorn says they won't start hitting you well I saw more police hitting more people uh if you you know it was just I saw this is fascinating. This is a little uh, okay. piece of well, so history that you you lived. I keep jumping ahead of myself. It must. Uh, I don't. I'm. 
I lived it, and it took years to process it, actually. But um, am, am I asking you something you don't no, want to talk no, about? No, no, no. Okay. No, I, I, I enjoy talking about it. There's more details that I feel like I don't want to talk about on the air. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, that day was training and hanging out, and then the next morning, everybody was, you were assigned to block uh, various routes incoming to the city. Uh, I was uh, with Ohio, so by state, wherever you were from. So I was on the Teddy Roosevelt Bridge was where all the Ohio people were supposed to go. Well, I hadn't had enough sleep in, a, you know, the previous three days. And so when I woke up at six in the morning, everybody was gone uh, where we I was sleeping in the basement of one of the dorm rooms. They let us sleep. Dorm uh, dormitories or one of the admin, one of the class buildings, and uh, so then I'm walking, trying to figure out how to get to the Teddy Roosevelt Bridge. And there's there's every single intersection has police on all four corners, and I'm like this straggling hippie walking along. And can you tell me how to get to the Teddy Roosevelt Bridge? And they'd they'd smile and they'd say that way. And I kept on doing that until I finally got to the Teddy Roosevelt Bridge, and I was about, I don't know, half a block away or, you know, 40 yards away, and all of the Ohio, all of the people blocking the bridge are at the end toward the Capitol, uh, and the traffic is stopped, and then in the distance, there's these sirens, and there was police cars coming 60 miles an hour right toward, uh, on the wrong side of the road because all the traffic going in was stopped on the wrong side of the road going 60 miles an hour and they didn't slow down and the the crowd dispersed it was you know the non-violent protest i don't know what would have happened had they not and then they went up around the block came back and again did the same thing really fast through the people that tried to sit down and then the third time they came up and then they stopped and were just hitting everybody and then the crowds were going in different directions and there was helicopters firing tear gas from the sky and there was all this just basically chaos and uh, uh you know there was there was uh, citizens who had hoses out uh up from their houses with the water running that was going out to the sidewalk and so that if you got tear gas you can wash your eyes it was like They'd been through this before, evidently. And uh, so um, now I'm like everywhere I look, there's police hitting anybody that doesn't look like a police, you know, anybody. And it's like, and throwing them into buses. They they had buses with uh, cars in front of each bus. And I would, they were stopping cars that had what looked like hippies in it and the hippie kids would put their hands on their head and they'd start beating them and then throwing them into the buses and then push, push their car off the road. So I'm like, now how do I get back to Georgetown University? I don't even know how I got here. So I saw some news people like a Peter Jennings type with the cameras and the, uh, they're all dressed in suits and uh, talking heads, walking, the one guy's walking backwards, talking to the camera and there's chaos going on. Well, I figure I'm with them. I'll just stay close to them. They must be going somewhere important. And I got to the university that way. But uh, uh, I also saw the 
students wow. attacking police, you know, the, the protesters jumping on police backs and tearing their gas masks off. And, you know, it was just, it was chaos. And so uh, they had arrested like 14,000 people uh, over the two days, I, I guess. Uh, depends on what numbers you listen to. I had heard 14,000. They had to make uh, take them to RFK Stadium because the jail was obviously not adequate. And uh, Yeah, I've seen pictures of them lying on the ground in the stadium wrapped in blankets. I mean, they look like lemmings in there. It had to have been horrible. How many, how long, so so tell me what happened after that. So this was Monday. Now, Monday, um, I was, got back to the, the, the university, and then the police were, it was just like a comedy to me uh, uh, on, on one level, because the police would be lined up off the campus at the front gate, and uh, the students would be, you know, hundred feet away and they'd be taunting the police and it was illegal for the police to go on the campus. And then the students would get closer and every once in a while, the students would get too close and then the police would jump, run across the line and go grab students and beat them and carry them off. You know, it was just, it was comical. I mean, in a sense, uh, the, Hey guys, stay away! <laughs> Don't get as close as you can, even though it's illegal for them to go on the campus. You know, you're seeing what's going on. Somebody put gas, filled gas mask on the statue type of thing that you always see pictures of when there's these kinds of things. And until about four o'clock in the afternoon, they announced. Then at four, they said the radios were saying that it was all clear; it was safe to go out on the streets. Well, you know, I didn't see any of my friends. Uh, my friends were in a U-Haul. They had gone out there and they'd rented a U-Haul truck and went out. Uh, and when they got uh, on that Monday morning, we're getting ready to go to the Teddy Roosevelt Bridge. Police, once they were on the road, stopped them, threw a tear gas canister in the back of the U-Haul and closed the door. The back door drove them to the stadium. You know, <laughs> I was glad I was not part of that group. Jeez. But anyway, four o'clock, I went to try to find my friends. I didn't learn that until later. I went to American University around six o'clock. There was incident occurring. There were somebody who decided we're going to take the American flags down and burn them. And I didn't want to be around. So I got out on the road and uh, started hitchhiking home. And I, you know, got it couple rides out of town everybody's everybody this was such a big thing that everybody when i was driving hitchhiking out there people would say um say uh what's going on you know it's like i felt like everybody wanted to hear about it you know and uh when i was going back you know, the first few rides were i wanted, wanted to hear about what happened and what i saw and then I'm in the middle of nowhere in Maryland somewhere and it's freezing cold. And so like I was trying to decide if I should go break into a barn some that's across this big field or uh, sleep in a culvert. Uh, you know, I had my sleeping bag, but, and then I got picked up by these three guys. Two of them were students from Antioch and the third one was an older guy. And his story was he started smoking rabbit grass from this seven and when he was nine he was 
drinking and taking acid when he was 12. And so he was like, he was 27. And then there was the two students and the three of them had gone. And they said, uh, yeah, our, our whole reason for going was to get pigs. We wanted to see how many pigs we could hurt. So, so you've got this whole thing that where people say it's a nonviolent protest. And then you find out, and ever since then, when you see violence and you see broken windows and you see things that, you know, rogue government stuff, it, it's, uh, you know, it's not all peaches and cream. It's not all nice people that are involved with these things. There's a lot of sincere people. We were all very much against the war. I was, you know, to this day, I, I'm ashamed of the things that our country's done in that regard. I'm not ashamed of being American in the respect that we are very blessed, but this it's very complicated world we live in. And so these guys were out to get do violence. And then finally we got to Pittsburgh and they were going to a different part of Ohio than I was. And that $10 that my uh, aunt Shirley gave me, that was the exact price for a ticket from Pittsburgh to Athens. I took the bus mm-hmm. all night long. I could tell a long story about the three people that were on that bus. Mm-hmm. One was, uh, <laughs> I don't know how much one here. One was a guy who was going around the going around the country. Uh, he worked at Coney Island and was looked for oh like gosh. animals with like eight legs that were born was with two heads. Or you know he. He had a whole stack of pictures, and he would go around the country. <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah, it was for a yeah, freak show carny guy. And uh, the second was a, a, a young black woman who sat by herself and didn't want to be bothered. And the third was a woman named, uh, I don't remember her name, but she said to me when she found my name was Eddie, she said, every boyfriend <laughs> I've ever had was named Eddie. And, would you come home with me to Parkersburg? <laughs> no, I have a I have a philosophy class at 10 a.m., so I got to get home and take a shower. <laughs> you know, I didn't quite say it like that, but that was my intention was to get back to school. I was. You know, I'm curious about what you thought of the people that were at May Day. Were they against the war and also against the people that were fighting the war because they were in the war, like the American troops? You know, I know my father fought in Vietnam. He was in the Army, and he fought in Vietnam. And when he came back from Vietnam, he was still an amazing person. I mean, he never, he never mm-hmm. drank, really. He didn't smoke. He, you know, was a... A healthy person, but he was never right. the same. It was a terrible, terrible war, and for a lot of these men and women, the re- the uh, reception that they got when they came home right. scarred them for life. I mean, it was very, very difficult. I'm just wondering if you have thought about that over the years. Yeah, well, that's that's the big wrestling thing. We everybody of our generation, you know, come to terms with how to respond when people are think we were doing the right thing still you know i'm i'm persuaded if uh for example the cold war killing fields uh is a book i read last year that's a new one that uh mm-hmm. now that the horrible things that have happened to civilians as a result of mm-hmm. wars and conflicts and you know this time from you know we we didn't have a nuclear war but there was civilians have been suffering in all over the world because of all these these kind of things like my lie wasn't just a one-time event that was the whole problem and then napalm and bombings and 
uh, what they, you know, it all sounds nice when you say collateral damage, but you're talking about people, you know. And, uh, yeah, you are. Well, on that happy note, <laughs> oh my gosh. Right. No, you know, I think every generation has their May Day in one form or another. I'm thinking about what's going on in Hong Kong right now as I'm speaking with you. And I think about what groups like Antifa are doing here in, in our country. But I have to tell you, I still... And call me Pollyanna, but in traveling around this country, I have met the most amazing people in all these small corners. And, you know, that brings me full circle around to all the wonderful people I've met in your area of the country in Duluth. Yeah, yeah, there's, no, no, I've always, there's good people Mm -hmm. everywhere, great people Mm -hmm. everywhere. And, uh, you know, big hearts. Okay, I remember in the 80s one time, the uh, Atlantic Magazine had an article about how Americans were doing a hundred million dollars of mm-hmm. cocaine, snorting a hundred mm-hmm. million dollars of cocaine uh, a year. And uh, it's probably even a small number, but I was ready to, I wrote, I actually wrote a letter to the editor about how it's an example of our selfishness. We're thinking of ourselves. Well, the next day I heard that, Americans had done $200 million worth of volunteerism and uh, generosity and stuff like that. And I'm thinking, well, that's, yeah, you can look at one side of the thing. Yeah, there's a lot of people who live for themselves, you know, and right. then there's a lot of people that are unbelievably generous and you never even see it. You never hear about it, you know, but it's it's happening every day. It's uh, You know, it's one of my missions in life, actually, and it's one of the reasons why I'm doing this show is to showcase good people that I meet everywhere I go in life and give them a voice. I mean, I think you've done some amazing things with your writing and with the people that you've highlighted and, and the things you're still doing now. And, and uh, you know, this is actually a good chance for me to say thank you to OWC for sponsoring this show because it allows me to do what I love and to meet amazing people. And, and so I have to send a shout out to them and thank them for doing that. I couldn't do it without them. And they're an example of good people. You talk to uh, from Larry O'Connor and Jen Suleon down, the people that run that company, they've all got really big hearts. You know, they're sitting there in Woodstock or in Austin or in Belgium. And I believe in the corporate culture comes from the top down. And, and, and so I think that what you're doing is also wonderful because you're highlighting the good in people and these interesting stories that you tell. And I know, I wish I could talk to you all night, but um, we're going to have to eventually wrap this up. I'm just wondering if there's anything you know we're just gonna have to do this again Ed. Yeah. we have to make this a <laughs> a more regular event because there's a lot more to talk about but well we'll we could talk about the arts scene we haven't even hardly touched uh, what uh there's just what the creative spirit in, in this country and in our in Duluth has really uh, got a vibrant art scene and I kind of that's one of the focus uh, mm-hmm. themes that recurs in my, my blog is encouraging people to go out and uh, telling people where the artists are showing and what's happening. And I've been interviewing artists for mm-hmm. 
over 10 I'm years. I'm looking at your blog right now, and you do have some wonderful stories in here with with you're lucky because you're working in print at the moment, so you can you can actually show some of this art. I'm looking at Heidi Pollard here, yeah. and then, I mean, just scrolling through some of this. So tell people where they can go to see some of your stories and see some of the artists that are showing in Duluth. The blog is Pioneer Productions dot blogspot.com it's called any man's territory and if you google any man e-n-n-y-m-a-n and any subject you'll see what i've had to say about it uh the reason it's called pioneer productions if you want to go in another direction we shouldn't go there but uh <laughs> i'm a descendant of daniel boone who was a pioneer oh, I love and, that. Uh, are you really uh, yeah so uh, yes and it's uh so I, i'm the one in the family that uh, researched the genealogy stuff and uh, uh, verified it. You know, it was like, you know how every family has its family lore, but I felt like I don't want to believe something that maybe it's just the family lore and we want to believe it. So I verified where I'm uh, descended by two different daughters of Daniel Boone, actually. So there was cousins, second generation who married each other, maybe neither here nor there. But the Pioneer Productions is uh, Mm -hmm. where that comes from. Well, you are a very interesting man. I'm so glad I got to meet you, and I'm glad you were willing to tell some tall tales and actually some very interesting things about some of the history that you've witnessed. And I have a feeling that's not going to be the end of it, Ed. I think you're just, you know, with what you do and writing every day and meeting new people every day, I'm going to look forward to following you. So I encourage everybody listening in to go to pioneerproductions.blogspot.com. And that has been Ed Newman from Duluth, Minnesota, who is uh, an author. uh, I mean, I don't know how to describe you. You are an any man. (laughs) You've been involved in in a lot over the years and have over 5,000 blog posts. So everybody go visit Ed Newman's site. And thank you for taking the time to talk to us today, Ed. It's really been very, very interesting and a lot of fun. Thanks. Thank you very much.